0: Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're uh, visiting, again, welcome to you. Thanks for being with us this morning. You're here on uh, morning when we are starting a new sermon series. We're going to be looking for these next number of weeks uh, leading up until Advent, the few weeks before Christmas. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So we are switching from the very first book, our series on the life of Abraham and the book of Genesis, to Revelation. Uh, let me... Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll read our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 1. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1028. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and to your word. We thank you for the gift that it is. Uh, And as we turn to this portion of your word, would you remind us again that all of Scripture is given to us, that we might be built up, that we might uh, know you that we might see the power of your uh, life at work in us. So would you do that good work? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we come to you? We ask that you would do this by the power of your Spirit, and we ask it in the name of your Son and our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 1. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." This is the word of the Lord. It's given to us for our good and for His glory. Well, you can feel the shift in uh, where we've just come in uh, Genesis, uh, talking about the life of Abraham in the ancient Near East, suddenly right smack dab in the middle of the 1960s, as John writes with his lava lamp and writes of these images and pictures and things that just seem to leap out on the page to us as he has this vision of, of God in heaven, and the book as a whole gets more colorful still. What in the world is Revelation all about? Let me give us a little background, and then we're going to talk about why we're going to be looking at Revelation these next number of weeks. The book of Revelation was written by the, uh, likely by the Apostle John, the one who wrote the uh, Gospel of John, the one who wrote the letters that bear his name in the New Testament. He wrote it near the end of his life and uh, most likely during the reign of Emperor Domitian, somewhere between the years when he reigned between 81 and 96 A.D. Uh, That's after Nero. There have already been persecutions of Christians, mainly in the city of Rome, but it's begun to spread throughout the empire. And it's under Domitian that... um, the uh, persecutions of Christians begin to reach their height. He's writing to a group of people who are facing persecution and with the promise and threat of more to come. He writes this letter, the book of Revelation, and in particular these seven letters that we're going to come across in chapters 2 and 3 over the next number of weeks to seven churches in Asia Minor into what is now modern-day Turkey. And uh, you've seen those uh, cities listed in verses 11 and 12 there, and they're in a certain order. If you were to go into, uh, into Asia Minor and start at Ephesus, then the progression of these cities would take you around a big circle as you go from city to city where the courier would come and bring this letter to the churches. Now, here it is. It's written to Ephesus. It's written to Thyatira, these other letters. But like all of Scripture, it is written to us. When we open up uh, in the New Testament, for instance, the book of Galatians, it is written to the church in Galatia, but it is written to us. Similarly, the book of Revelation, it's written to these churches in Asia Minor, but it's written to us. And John's even trying to get that across to us symbolically. The book of Revelation is a book that is infused with all kinds of imagery and symbolism. And that includes numbers, and the number seven represents completeness or uh, finality, and so when he writes to the seven churches, he's giving us a picture of the church as a whole. It's these seven churches under persecution in Asia Minor, but it is Christ's church down through the ages everywhere and at all times, and that means that these letters are for us. So we're going to be looking at them. Uh, it is apocalyptic a, a word that uh, there's uh, ancient literature including parts of the Bible like the book of Daniel that are apocalyptic that talk about uh, the, the things that are happening behind the scenes in the spiritual world that we cannot see often telling us about things that will come in the future but also telling us about things that are happening in the present and things that have been and it uses these uh, in, incredible and colorful images to do that and that's kind of the genre that revelation comes in it's, it's one that's unusual and uh, uh, not, not sort of our common way of talking and talking about Christ, but it comes to us as this. We do have, we do have some modern-day equivalents. Let, let me give you an example. Um, if you think about political cartoons, okay, if you open up the paper and read a political cartoon and it's got uh, an elephant on it and a donkey on it, then, then you know that it's making some political statements one way or the other about Republicans and Democrats, because those are symbols that we recognize. If somebody were to come from another culture and open up uh, a political cartoon, you, they, they would have no idea what's being discussed because it's not a part of their culture. Revelation, similarly, is using these images in these pictures that would have really resonated with these people in the first century. And so we, we seek to understand them, too. It's not just some esoteric, strange imagery. It is a picture for us of what Christ is doing in the world. And so it matters that we enter into the imaginative world of Revelation, that we can understand what John has for us. Um, One of the commentators, Richard Bauckham, says this, The visual power of Revelation affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. See, Revelation is trying to get to us at that imaginative level to help us to see things differently, to see things from God's perspective in a way that often we don't. Many of you will be familiar with uh, the short story writer Flannery O'Connor, and she talked about her art as a short story writer trying to bring the truth of Christianity to a deaf and dark world. She said it this way. She said, To the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. And that's what John is doing for us. Now this strange and often confusing book of Revelation can lead us astray in a zillion different ways about how we try to read it and make sense of it, unless we keep a couple things in mind. And first and foremost, this. The revelation was written to bring comfort to the churches that John addresses. It was meant to bring them encouragement in times of persecution, in times of suffering. And that meant when the first audience received this they would have understood it in such a way that they saw that God was coming to assure and comfort and put his arm around them. And so any reading that we come to of Revelation has got to start there, that it is for our comfort and encouragement. Um, One commentator put it this way, God gave us Revelation not to tickle our fancy, but to strengthen our hearts. And the other part of this, is we read Revelation, we need, we need to see the main theme of what happens here. There's a sort of uh, apocryphal story, I think, of a group of seminarians who are out playing basketball in a basketball court one day. And they see off in the bleachers some guy reading his Bible. It's so after the game. They come up to him. You know, they're, they're seminary students. And uh, they say, so, uh, you know, what are you reading? And the guy says, well, I'm, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And then they say, well, uh, you, know, can, you know, can we explain it to you? You know, we are the wise seminary students. Uh, do you understand that which you read? And uh, the guy said, well, I, I think so. Uh, it seems like point of revelation is that Jesus wins. <laughs> exactly. That is, in fact, the point of revelation that Jesus wins, that God conquers, that He has us in His hands. Maybe put a little more academically, uh, one commentator puts it this way, God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. God rules history and He is bringing it to His end. It is safely in His hand. And So we're going to look at these letters over the next few weeks. Uh, would, Would really recommend for those of you that want to dig into this, we have some resources listed on our website of other things you can be reading, so check that out. Lots of good material on this. We are studying this over the next few weeks because, like John's congregation, we also are a people in need of encouragement and perspective. We also need to have the veil pulled back and see what God has to show us as a church. We too need the message that God gives to the seven churches in these chapters. We need to hear what he says to them. One uh, commentary by John Stott is titled this, What Christ Thinks of the Church. That's what Revelation chapter 1 through 3 is about. And that is a helpful thing for us to look at as well. What does Christ think about the church? What does Christ think about our church? And how do we come in align with his vision for who we are to be? See, the church was God's idea. The church was formed by God's calling. It was redeemed by Christ's blood. This is God's deal. And if we're going to be a healthy, effective, God-honoring church, then we're going to need to know God's intention for the church. We're going to need to know God's critiques of the church. And we're going to need to know the hope and power that Christ offers to the church. So how are we going to get that? How are we going to step more fully together into this life of being God's church, fueled by Him? How are we going to do that together? We must have an awe-inspiring, life-altering, crystal-clear picture of Jesus. And that's what John aims to give us throughout the book of Revelation. And it's what he shows us right here in chapter 1. So we're going to be looking at these first few chapters to see what they have to teach us, Grace Covenant, Presbyterian Church, about being the church. Now, these specific letters that he writes, to these churches in Asia Minor and to us, begin in chapter 2 when he gives these individual letters. But before we get to them, the book of Revelation begins here in chapter 1 with this opening scene of the risen and exalted reigning Christ. Why? Because if we're going to be able to step into our calling as a church and be faithful and honoring to Jesus, then we, like John, must share this vision that John receives like John if we're going to do that then we must see Jesus we must see three things about Jesus here first we need to see who Jesus is what he has done and where he stands who he is what he's done and where he stands first Jesus who he is chapter 1 or excuse me verse 1 opens up with this the revelation of Jesus Christ And revelation means the unveiling, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. In other words, this this word revelation and this book revelation is a tearing back of, of the curtain of reality so that we can see what is going on behind the scenes. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is unveiled and the one who is revealed and He is the revealer to us. See, this book is about an unveiling not just of events, of things to happen, of things that are happening, but an unveiling of God, and in particular an unveiling of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see Him in all His glory. We don't, we don't have a lot of concepts and, and categories maybe for glory. What, one that we have in my house right now with small kids are superheroes. We're way into superheroes right now. Uh, and so uh, one of my sons is... Uh, is um, Spider-Man. We've got another one that's Batman. We've got a daughter who's Supergirl. So we were talking the other day, and uh, Elizabeth, my wife, said, "You know, it sounds like we need to be we need to be superheroes for Halloween," uh, which our kids thought were thought was great. And so uh, she said, "You know, for Hannah, our youngest, our one and a half year old, you know, I can I can I can sew a little cape and we'll tie it around her." And one of our kids said, "That's great, Hannah can be Super Baby," and. <laughs> She can shoot arrows out of her belly button. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those lesser-known superpowers. Um, <laughs> let me just say that if you happen to be taking care of Hannah in the nursery, watch out. <laughs> um, but this idea of of power and of majesty in my kids' minds, that superheroes. One, one of the most popular, of course, in our house is, is Superman. And you know what happens with Superman. He's mild-mannered Clark Kent until he runs to the telephone booth I don't know if he does that anymore. He used to run into a telephone booth. Uh, and then, you know, he begins what does he do? He, he begins to rip open his shirt, and un- underneath, what do you see? You see the blue and the red and the gold as he is unveiled for who he really is. The glasses come off, the reporter's suit is tossed aside, and Superman emerges. Now, there are a lot of differences between Jesus and Superman. Let me go on record. <laughs> Jesus is not a superhero in disguise, but what John is telling us, he's doing something similar. He is trying to reveal for us who Jesus is in all of his glory. He's tearing back the veil so that we can see it because he knows that we need to see clearly a clear picture of who Jesus is. We need to see that because our pictures are often so muddied of who Jesus is. We live in a world of plenty of slogans and bumper stickers and all kinds of things about Jesus uh, you've seen the picture of pale-faced, long-haired, white, Caucasian Jesus staring in rapture up into the sky. That Jesus. Maybe the bumper sticker of God is my co-pilot, the one who's here to help me out in life. Or I follow a Jewish carpenter, that picture of Jesus. Or uh, this one comes from, uh, there's a, when we lived in Philadelphia, there was a, a store called Urban Outfitters. And the most popular piece of uh, clothing they ever produced was a t-shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy right? Our pictures of Jesus. Or maybe for some of us, the Jesus is my boyfriend approach to worship. Or maybe our picture of Jesus is a little more scholarly. Uh, You know, maybe in school you're coming across the academic quest for the historical Jesus. Take your pick, Jesus the cynic philosopher, Jesus the revolutionary, Jesus the moral exemplar, and so on and so on. Or maybe for us, it's the political Jesus. Sometimes sometimes in places, it's Jesus, the liberating revolutionary. In our time and place, it's more likely to be Jesus, the culture warrior, devoted to a particular cause or a particular party or a particular country, rather than loving and leading his church and reigning over his kingdom. Or perhaps something like this. Jesus, the good moral example for my children. Or Jesus, the very important biblical concept. Or Jesus, the one who saved me long ago but now seems so distant. Or Jesus, the one that I'm going to get to one day when I've got a little bit more time on my hands. See, Revelation shows us that all of these distorted pictures of Jesus pale in comparison with the real thing, our real risen Lord Christ. And we desperately need to see the real thing. See, we are Christ's church, and he is our Lord. And so we, much as John in the first century church of Asia Minor, we need to see Jesus clearly and unveiled. What do we see when we see this picture that is revealed to John of Jesus here in chapter 1? We see several things, but first, we see that Jesus, and we need to see that Jesus is our prophet. He's our prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet is the one who brings God's word to the world, the one who speaks to us the very words of God. And we see Jesus doing that. Look in verse 5. He is called the faithful witness, the one who is witnessing to God, the one who is speaking to us the faithful and true words of God. You may know that the word that's translated here, witness, from the Greek, it's the word from which we get the word martyr. And we've had a particular resonance for the churches he's writing to as they knew people that we consider as martyrs, those who not only have given witness to the Word of Christ, but have died for it as well. Jesus is our witness, our faithful witness, the one who is trustworthy, who's committed to us, who's committed to God, who's committed to the truth. And this Jesus, the faithful witness, tells John to write down everything that he will show him. Christ, the faithful prophet, speaking to us the words that we so desperately need to hear. Jesus is our risen prophet. But secondly, we see here that Jesus is also our risen priest. What does a priest do? Whereas a prophet brings God's words to the people, a priest is the one who brings God's people to God, who makes intercession for them, who makes the sacrifices, who brings them before their holy God. And in verse 13, we see this picture of Jesus wearing a long robe with this golden sash around him. The robe that's being pictured here most likely is the robe of a priest. We see Jesus exalted in heaven wearing the robes of a priest because he is the one who has brought his people to God once and for all. The one who has died that we might live. The one who has redeemed us for all time. He has saved us. He has done the work of a good and final priest. He's done everything necessary for us. And even now, here he is in heaven, interceding for his people, caring for them, revealing himself to us. And even more than that, back in verse 5, look, what is he doing? It says that he's making a kingdom of priests. In other words, he's taking us, and as he brings us to himself, he makes us priests with a little P, following Jesus the priest with a capital P. What does that mean? For us, as we're called into relationship with Him, He sends us out that we might point others to God as well through Christ. That He sends us out in the world to connect others and God. We follow the great high priest. He's made us a kingdom of priests. He is our priest. We also see here that He's our King. Verse 5 calls Jesus the ruler of kings on earth. Later in Revelation, in chapters 17 and 19, Jesus is called King of kings and Lord of lords. Some of us, maybe you can hear in the back of your mind the line from Handel's Messiah, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. comes from Revelation right here. This king of kings, verse 6, has made us into a kingdom. He has made us his people. He has made us into a new reality in the world. And this king, in verse 16, has a sword that is coming out of his mouth. The sword of his word by which he is going to bring justice. By which he is going to rightly divide the truth and know the hearts of all of us one day. It's what Hebrews chapter 4 says. This sword that is the word of God that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And as a good king, he rules us, and he defends us, and he cares for us. John looks and he sees in heaven this glorified prophet, priest, and king, our Jesus. But one more thing, too. We see here that our prophet, priest, and king, that he is, in fact, our God as well. Verse 13 calls him the Son of Man. It's a quote from the book of Daniel that appears throughout. Uh, One place in particular comes up in Daniel chapter 7 as it speaks of this glorious Son of Man who is going to bring the rescue of God and God's kingdom to the world. uh, John sees this picture of Jesus. Verse 14 says that the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. And in Daniel, Daniel sees a vision of one in heaven, God himself. "...with hair that is white like snow." Do you see what John is saying? He's saying, when we see Jesus, we see the divine Son of God. He is, in fact, God Himself. Look at the way he goes on as he describes what he sees, verses 14 through 16. "...the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And hear what John sees here. He sees the exalted Christ. He sees the one who is radiating. He sees the one who has these feet of metal that are secure and solid and can't be moved. We see this exalted we see the one that to look in his face is like staring into the sun. It is that bright. It is that majestic. We hear the one that when he speaks, it is like the sound of the ocean rushing over us. See, John had a big picture of Jesus. Jesus. He goes on in here and says that I am the first and the last. Earlier he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He is claiming and exhibiting his divinity. He is God. That's our Jesus, enthroned and in glory in heaven. You see what John, what is happening to John? He's getting this big picture of Jesus on the throne, our exalted uh, divine Jesus in glory. And he is overwhelmed. I mean, you can imagine as you read what he sees. Remember what we talked about in Isaiah chapter 6 in our confession of sin today. When Isaiah gets this picture of God seated on the throne, he doesn't even look directly at God. He, looks at, he just looks at the corner of his robe flowing off the throne and he feels like he is being undone, that he's becoming unknit. And here John looking at Christ like staring into the sun and he collapses as though dead and he should have been dead. He should have been dead but he's not. What happens next? This one like the son says to him, "Fear not," and lays his burning hand on John. And John lives, and he stands up and he hears the message that he has for him, not death for John, but a welcome a welcome healing, life-giving hand. Do you see how we too have a need To have our view of Jesus, our understanding of who He is, our picture of Him renovated as well. That we might see what John has, that we see Jesus majestic, glorious, exalted, that we might see Him as worthy of worship. What would happen for us as individuals and as a church if we had our eyes open a little bit more to this reality? If we let this vision of Jesus capture our minds and our imaginations and our hearts. We read it here and it feels strange and foreign on the page. But is there something in here that feels, at least somewhere in you, compelling? Something that in you that longs to tap into this. Not just some vague spiritual energy or a secret for a more successful life. But this, to know Jesus, our risen King. To live all of life in the reality of this exalted one, our King in glory. Well, it is on offer for us here now. This is Jesus, the one who is here with us even in this room right now. The one whose ears, uh, the one whose ears are open to hear our praise, who answers our prayers, whose blazing eyes look into our lives even today to burn out all the dross and to refine us into something beautiful, and fit for heaven. You see this is the Jesus with whom we deal as well. John says we need to see him like this. We need to have our vision expanded, exploded even, that it might be captured by this picture. He describes for us what he sees, but he also tells us, he also tells us about what Jesus has done for us. And everything that he tells us about his, what he has done for us centers on this, his death for us. Look at the several places we see this. Verse 5, he speaks of him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse 17, Jesus said that he had died and he is now alive forevermore. Verse 5, the firstborn of the dead. Verse 17, I am the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the death, the keys of death and Hades. you see what he's saying? He says, I have died for you, and I have risen to life that you might have life too. He says, I have gone to that very thing that we fear more, most, or should fear most. I have gone right into the heart of death itself, and I have come through on the other side, and I hold the keys in my hand so that death will never destroy you. Our risen King says that, that He is the one who has done this for us. He has paid everything for us that we might be brought to life, that we might be rescued, that we might be like John, people who are able to uh, be lifted up, that we might actually see Jesus rather than be absolutely incinerated in His presence. That this holy God would stoop down and forgive us and make us beings fit for eternity in His presence. He says, that's what I've done for you, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. He also tells us, That this very One who has come and accomplished this is returning for us. Verse 17 shows the picture. It says that John sees Him coming on the clouds. These are the clouds of God's presence. It is a picture of Him coming at the end. What does it say? All the tribes on earth will wail on account of Him. It says there is in, in fact a day of return that will be a day of judgment. And it will be a day of life for all God's people. And it will be a day of wailing for those who don't know him. But he says he is returning. This majestic one, returning for us. That is what he's done for us. And finally and briefly, we also see here something of where he stands. Do you notice where Jesus is standing here? He shows us this picture in this heavenly scene. And John speaks of these seven lampstands. That he sees. And, it, and it's calling back on an Old Testament picture of uh, the lampstands that were always left burning in God's temple and in God's tabernacle. And we're told at the end of this chapter that these lampstands are the seven churches to which John is writing. Okay, so what he's saying is that there's this picture in heaven of these seven churches, and Jesus is not behind them, and he's not above them, and he's not ignoring them. Where is Jesus? He is right in the midst of them. And imagine what comfort this would be to the people undergoing this kind of persecution, or people who are struggling, even as we are, in various ways in life. To know this, that Christ so cares about his church, and that includes us, Grace Covenant, that it gives us this picture of a lampstand in heaven itself and that Jesus Himself is in the midst of them. He values us. He values His church. He died for it that He might rescue it. And even now, He stands among the churches and among the church that He might continue to bring His power, His healing, His grace at work. He doesn't stand far off. We find this again and again in Scripture and we see it in the words of Revelation here. Our God does not stand far off, but He comes close. And He is there. And He is here with us as well. So these next few weeks, we're going to jump into these letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. But we begin here with this scene in heaven. Because we need to know this. That the vision that John sees is the vision that we are to have as well. The things that he sees going on in heaven in chapter 1, they are our present reality as well. That is the place of worship before God's throne even now. The lights of the lampstands of His churches blaze in heaven even now. And this risen Jesus, shining like the sun, stands there now, today. And whether we've seen it or not today, it is the worship of Him that we have been a part of together this morning. And it is this risen Jesus before whose eyes we live out every moment of our lives and we step in to Monday, tomorrow, back into our jobs, into our callings, into our relationships. But we're intended to do that with this vision, that this is the reigning Jesus that we serve in every little thing that we do. It is our present reality. And if we're going to be the church that God calls us to be and if we're going to be able to hear what Christ says to the churches over these next few weeks in his letters, then we first must see what John saw. Jesus in glory. Jesus for us. Jesus who has us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word today and in these coming weeks um, that we might see more clearly still, that you might reinvigorate our imagination, that you might... Uh, relight our eyes of faith, that we might see You in Your glory, that we might know that You are the risen Christ. You are the one that we follow. You are the one who calls us into lives of faithfulness and following You. And what could be more compelling than that? That we live in light of this glorious scene. May it be more so for us today and this week. Lord, meet us. We need You. We need You unveiled before us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our faithful one. Amen.